0: Well, if you have your Bible with you, if you would turn to Acts chapter 22. Acts 22 and go all the way to the end there, verse 30. And then, of course, we'll be in the rest of the New Testament for the uh, duration of the sermon. (laughs) Uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 30, and then we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 23. And while you're finding your place, let me just ask you the question and, and, and see if this could sort of sink in to your heart a little bit. What would it take for you to feel entirely free to face literally anything in your life? What would you need to know or what would you need to own or what would you need to experience to feel thoroughly equipped to survive and even prevail in the midst of the hardest thing that you can imagine? Whatever you can imagine laying ahead of you, the worst thing that you can imagine, what do you think you would need to have, know, feel, experience, to be equipped for that moment. Now, for some of you, this kind of works backwards, right? You've already been through some very horrendous things in your life. Something in your past, whether it's ancient past or or recent, was in, in your experience, that's the worst thing that could happen to you. It's actually already happened. What do you wish you knew then that would have helped you more persevere through it? Or What are you thankful that you did know or did have that did allow you to persevere through it? As you've already seen kind of journeying through um, the Acts of the Apostles, these pioneers of the early Christian church have been through some really traumatic things. Not just dramatic, but traumatic things. There's attempted murders. There's intense oppression and conspiracies of destruction. There's imprisonment and torture, shipwrecks. Just the general anxiety, the kind of uh, psychological turmoil of being in these very dangerous situations, the spiritual warfare that is really heavy in all of this. There's all kinds of things. In Acts chapter 9, verse 16, God says about the apostle Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's a part of the calling of Paul. The ministry, the mission of suffering. And in our passage today, Paul is still in the thick of this suffering in the name of Christ. But there's something that in the midst of his imprisonment and even in the threats of violent death, that in essence sets him free to prevail over it. So let's take a look, beginning Acts 22, verse 30, and then we're going to read to the end of chapter 23. Let's begin. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that's the Roman uh, tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, this is verse 1 of chapter 23, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice of the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly Then he called two of the centurions and said, "Get ready 200 soldiers, with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea as the third hour of the night, at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his Excellency the Governor Felix, Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing observing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Let me take a deep breath and we will (laughs) dive in. Now, what's, what's interesting about this narrative, something as I began to look over it is, in a way, how little Paul is in this. I mean, it's about Paul, but he almost seems kind of passive in the thing. He's almost a passive subject in this entire passage. He's not the principal actor, although, you know, we, he's speaking and he's acting, of course, but he's almost observing, and, and in a way, he has no um, um, choice but to just observe these things that are taking place around him a, and, and happening to him, And so the passage is more about what's happening about him than what's happening from him or by him. You could read this as a case of victimization, and of course it is. He's being victimized, where because of his imprisonment and the accusation and the oppression against him, his, his agency to act has been effectively deleted. His freedom has been utterly revoked and he's, you know, he tries some political thing. He's mentioning I'm a Roman citizen just as he did in your focus passage last week. He's using some of that, but really he's at the mercy of these people with power. And yet even as he's pleading his case, whether it's his Roman citizenship or the, or he's making some kind of theological argument, we're going to see in a moment how, how uh, smart and shrewd that actually is. He doesn't come across as a victim at all. And I think this is because his heart is not tuned to his circumstances, but to the higher and deeper and truer reality of his union with Christ. Because of his friendship with Jesus, Paul is really free, even if not circumstantially free or, or, or physically free. So for me, the, the key verse in the entire passage, in, in the whole big chapter, the key verse is verse 11. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord stood by him. What difference would it make to know that the Lord is always by you, nurturing you, nurturing your courage, fueling your bravery? I want to share with you three freedoms that being friends with Jesus affords us. Three liberties, three freedoms that being united to Christ, being brothers with Jesus, being friends with Jesus affords us. The first is this. Friendship with Jesus gives freedom from loveless religion. Friendship with Jesus gives freedom from loveless religion. The Pharisees and the Sadducees end up in this squabble. It's interesting that these are the two groups that make up the Sanhedrin, this council who's kind of trying Paul, because A, they're really theologically opposite ends of the spectrum, but B, they're also the two groups that Jesus himself had the most run-ins with in his earthly ministry. Now, the interesting thing about the Pharisees is that they're really kind of, you know, to put it in, in today's sort of categories they would be like the conservative religionists of their day. In our terms they would be like the you know conservative evangelicals. They believed the Old Testament scriptures which was their only bible, right? They believed in quote unquote the bible at least as far as they actually understood it. They believed in the supernatural world. They believed in a resurrection to come. They were basically trying to figure out how to live in the world, but not of the world. How do we apply this scriptures that we believe to the circumstances in our present day? They're trying to be good applicational followers or worshipers of God. Today, we use the word Pharisee or or Pharisaical to refer to people who are judgmental or legalistic. And that's for very good reason. But theologically or just philosophically, right, Jesus would actually would have aligned most closely with the Pharisaical tradition. Jesus' teaching kind of came out of um, theologically the Pharisaical tradition, just as Paul does. And he claims here, I'm a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. He's not saying I'm a legalist and a son of legalists. He's, He's trying to make a theological or historical heritage connection with them. The big error of the Pharisees, of course, despite all the things that they got right, at least in terms of their, uh, um, you know, conservatism, was rejecting Jesus, which is the one thing you got to get right. (laughs) They rejected Jesus as the culmination of everything that they believed. And that's not just a big error. That's a damnable error. Then you have the Sadducees. And if the Pharisees were like the conservative religionists of their day, the Sadducees would be like the progressive or the liberal religionists of the day. Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees decided it was kind of safer to kind of go along to get along. Just they looked at the Roman culture. They, they were, um, uh, you know, they saw the potential oppression. And they thought it's, it's better to compromise than to keep bucking against this system constantly. And the result was that they began to reject some fundamental truths in the Jewish doctrine. And they favored a kind of elitist materialism. And one of the biggest things that they rejected, of course, was the idea of a future resurrection. And so we see this kind of intramural skirmish between them. And Paul kind of takes advantage of it. Um, He mentions the resurrection. And in a way, it's like he knows, as he reasons, okay, these Two people who are together, unified to oppress me, I know what could actually, you know, divert attention. I'll bring up the resurrection, which is a bone of contention between them, and they'll start going at it with each other. And, of course, they do. And as they do that, they actually show they're more similar than they think, than they actually realize. We see how spiritually similar these theologically dissimilar groups are. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, the horseshoe theory. You ever heard of the horseshoe theory? Sometimes people use it today um, to refer to the extremes of any kind of, especially like in the political sphere, the political spectrum. And I promise I won't get too political with you this morning. But the horseshoe theory is essentially this. The further to the, the, the far right or the far left you go, the closer those two extremes are than they actually realize. The more similar the, the furthest extremes are to each other. The two extremes are more alike than they understand philosophically because while they weigh their relative philosophical differences, what really unites them is a shared rejection of Jesus and the good news. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees' commonality. They're at extreme philosophical ends, but in the horseshoe, they've rejected Jesus. And so they've embraced essentially these true God, godless religions, loveless religions, And just like the extreme left-wingers and the extreme right-wingers of today, while seemingly polar opposite, they both kind of embrace a a rigid fundamentalism about their own perspectives. Both extremes embody a kind of cancel culture. And what we see happening today is just an echo of Acts chapter 23. There's still today a Sadducee-like religion of cultural compromise. And they're still today a Pharisaic-like religion of self-righteous moralism. And they aren't so different when it comes down to what really eternally matters. For all of their intellectual weight or behavioral purity, without a real love for Jesus, they're just hollow shells. Just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, if you have all knowledge, even if you have all spirituality, if you don't have love, you have nothing. Religion without love is bankrupt. And religion without love is hopeless. So both extremes are imprisoned by a kind of self-righteousness. Meaning they're both attempts at glorifying oneself and even saving oneself whether it's by intellectual or cultural cachet or clout, or it's by moral purity. But each are a kind of salvation by works. And what can break us out of this? We, we think in the flesh, when I want to reject one, I just pendulum swing to the other. I, I just move towards the other extreme. And that's how I right the wrong of the other. And so the only thing that can break us out of this, of course, is the good news, the gospel of Jesus. It sets us free from self-righteous living. Self-righteousness can only damn us, but the gospel that Christ has taken our sin to the cross and purchased eternal life out of that empty tomb so that even self-righteous compromisers like us can know the love of God, that changes everything. Only belief in this gospel gives us the alien righteousness of Christ by which we can know and enjoy and glorify God and through which we can love others, even people who aren't like us or don't think like us, people that we might otherwise think are despicable human beings because in the light of the gospel, we know that in the pure light of God's holiness, we are despicable human beings, and yet he came near to us. Friendship with Jesus gives us freedom from loveless religion. Secondly, for, uh, friendship with Jesus gives us freedom to speak truth to power. It gives us freedom to speak truth to power. Throughout the whole passage, Paul is in chains. He's in prison. And he's subject to conspiracies of assassination. And yet he's unhindered in speaking the truth. He's speaking freely to everyone. And I love, I love this exchange beginning um, uh, at the beginning of, of chapter 23. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, which is, I mean, come on. You're going to judge? You're going to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by him said... This is the high priest. Would you revile the high priest? And Paul says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This is really bold by Paul and also, I think, kind of hilarious. (laughs) First, that he would rebuke the people in charge of his fate. These are not the ones you want to make angry. He's declaring a good conscience to them in essence, pleading his innocence of whatever heresy or whatever it is they're trying to pin on him. And then he's interrupted by an assault. And rather than shrink back, he immediately speaks truth to power. He rebukes the high priest. He calls him a whitewashed wall, which is likely a a reference to a passage from Ezekiel. But it's also reminiscent, um, if you remember, of Jesus calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Right? You, you you look clean on the outside, but that's just a facade. It's it's covering up the rottenness and the instability inside. And they recoil. How dare you speak to the high priest like this? And Paul gets a little cheeky with them. He gets even bolder. He basically says, Well, I didn't know he was the high priest. So we ask the question, how could he have not known? Well, some scholars speculate it's because the high priest Hadn't been identified, right? They didn't single him out or otherwise designate him, so Paul didn't know. Or he wasn't dressed in his formal garment. so Paul couldn't know. I've even read where some were saying, um, you know, Paul probably has a problem with eyesight, and so he, he, he's not sure who's speaking, you know, that sort of thing. Basically, I think what Paul is saying is this he's not acting like the high priest. Why would we think that? Well, because he, he cites law. The high priest should know it's not to assault men who are being tried. He's, he's contradicting the own law that he's supposed to be an expert in. A real high priest should know that's a violation of the pharisaical law. So I think Paul's being sarcastic here, essentially kind of saying, well, I wouldn't rebuke a real high priest, right? <laughs> I rebuked him because he's not acting like a true high priest. It's pretty gutsy, isn't it? But Paul's not being arrogant, at least not sinfully arrogant, I don't think. He's being bold. He's he's probably being sarcastic. And I think it's for this reason he knows who the real high priest is. And he's in tight with that guy. And he knows no matter what the verdict of this kangaroo court turns out to be, his standing with the great judge of all mankind is secure, that he is justified. And a justified sinner is the freest person in the world. He is, in a sense, above all of these proceedings about him. As a prisoner of Christ, he is not in any danger of anything Christ has not ordained for him. In Colossians 4.18, Paul says to the church, remember my chains. Why would he say that? Because his chains don't just speak to his imprisonment, but to the cause of his imprisonment, the mission of Jesus Christ. His chains are a testimony not merely to the cruelty of men, but to the sovereign ordination of God. What others meant for evil, he knows God can turn to good. His suffering can in fact be used to advance the mission of the gospel. And while this kind of can sound like a weird, you know, martyr's complex, it can actually be rightly understood a place of real unparalleled spiritual power. Just as in Philippians 1.12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. (laughs) Where does this kind of crazy thinking come from? It it has to come from knowing that you have a deep, eternal, unbreakable kinship with Jesus. Only that could set you free to speak and act like this. This is a a little bit um, like what Ronnie was saying telling you last week about seeing your story as taking place within the story God is telling, even kind of seeing the twists and turns in your life about how God is rewriting your story, even turning your sorrow to joy or your darkest days into big picture windows into the cosmic wonder of the brightness of God's glory. You can do this when you realize that no matter what is happening to you circumstantially, even if it's completely out of your control, it's not surprising or incidental to God. It's not incidental to what he's doing in your life. You, you can live and speak like this with the help of the Holy Spirit submitted to God's sovereignty when you're keenly aware of your friendship with Jesus. A Romanian pastor by the name of Joseph Zahn was recounting in a missionary magazine a time that he was being interrogated, basically tortured by six men. And he said to one of them, What is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson through you. I don't know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will do to me only what God wants you to do. And you will not go one inch further. Because you are only an instrument of my God. He said, every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. Later, he said, during an early interrogation, I told an officer who was threatening to kill me, sir, let me explain how I see this situation. (laughs) He said, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen again to what this man preached He really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder than before. I'll actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, we know that Pastor Zahn would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement, he said. I remembered how for many years I'd been afraid of dying. I kept a low profile. I wanted badly to live. I wasted my life in inactivity. I wanted, uh, I wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. But now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. There's a Bible verse about that. (laughs) See, men like this are free to live like this because they realize the world is not what they make of it. And it's certainly not what sin or the devil makes of it. But because they realize that Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Joseph Zahn realized that only God gives spiritual security. His captors might even have killed him, but God had secured his soul. And they couldn't take that from him. Our souls are starving for this right now. In in, in an anxious age, where every day we're just awash in fear. Every message that we hear out there is be afraid of this or be afraid of those. Worry. Whether we realize it or not. Our soul is starving for this message. Do not put your hope in anything but God because only he is able to keep you. And when you have committed your life to Christ, he holds you in his hand and no one and nothing can snatch you out of it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3, Paul says that Christians are hidden with Christ in God. And if you are hidden with Christ in God, you have nothing left to hide when the real power that has overcome the world resides inside of you, when you know that through thick or thin, the Lord who is your friend is standing by you, you can speak the good news of God's power to the powers that threaten you. Whether those voices come from the outside or the inside, you rebuke them with the truth. Jesus gives freedom to speak truth to power. Thirdly and finally, most importantly, Jesus gives freedom over sin and death. Friendship with Jesus gives freedom over sin and death. What is all of this mess about? Why would Paul subject himself, let himself be victimized this way? Is it just a differing opinion about religion? I mean, that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are arguing over. Is that what the Roman persecution that Paul is subject to is all about? That's what a lot of people today think the whole Christian thing is about, just a different interpretation of some religious details, minutia. It's just different degrees of different paths that all go to the same place. But Paul and Jesus before him would not be subject to death for simply pushing some religious buttons. He's testifying to something that is utterly revolutionary. In verse 11... It's the facts about Jesus. <laughs> what are the facts about Jesus? Not that he was simply a good teacher or a religious prophet. You don't crucify someone who just says, hey, everybody, be nice to each other. We've got to kill that guy. No, you don't kill that guy. But you might if he said, hey, I'm God. Worship me. That's the facts about Jesus. In verse 6, this is what Paul says, brothers, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. The hope and the resurrection of the dead. He's referring to the gospel message. The announcement that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friendship with Jesus is our only hope. And Paul is willing to die for this gospel. He's willing to die for the gospel because he knows that the gospel is the announcement that through friendship with Jesus, you can actually escape death. Jesus says to the sister mourning Lazarus, if anyone believes in me, he will never die. And even if he dies, yet will he live. He's looking her in the eye. And then he says something really, I, th- I think, almost as important. Do you believe this? And so I love Acts 23, verse 11. Because it gives us a picture, not just of what drove Paul, what comforted him and gave him power and hope and confidence. It gives us a picture of what should drive us and comfort us and give us power and hope and confidence. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Take courage. What difference would it make to know that Jesus is standing by you? No matter what, no matter what. In Daniel three, we see an early historical narrative about persecution similar to what Paul is facing. Three friends of Daniel's are told if they don't renounce their faith and instead bow to the earthly king, they will be executed in a fiery furnace. And they refuse. They don't go along to get along. They don't bow to the spirit of the age. It would be easier to do that. Hey, let's just, let's lose this one. We can win some battles along the way. No, they say, this is, that's a bridge too far. We're not going to worship an idol, no matter what it costs us. And they're thrown into the furnace and as their executioners are watching, you remember what happens if you you know if you grew up in church, you you probably saw it on a flannel graph or something. Maybe I don't think Veggie Tales ever got to it, but because uh, that'd be weird, you'd have roasted asparagus or something. I don't know. <laughs> they put Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these three friends, into this furnace. And as the executioners are watching, there's a fourth figure in there. Who looks different? They said, "He looks like they say, He looks like, a son, a son. He looks like a, one of the sons of the gods. Who might that be? Well, it doesn't explicitly tell us, and this is an Old Testament story, but we tend to believe it's, it's a preincarnate manifestation. It's, it's, it's the Son of God. who's standing by them. In their worst moment, He was standing by them. About 15 years ago, I I was in the worst moment of my life, the worst point of my life, the deepest depression. Everything that I loved or aspired to was gone. It had been ripped away from me by my own sin. It was the rotten fruit of my own actions. And so I, I just was bottomed out and wondering, you know, maybe I don't belong here anymore. Maybe I shouldn't be alive anymore. I was living in the guest bedroom of our home and every night just begging God to do something, change something, help me, show me, because I just wanted to end it all. Face down in the carpet of that room, crying into the floor. And I did this night after night, just feeling completely hopeless, worthless, abandoned. All I could see in front of me was a void. And I don't know what was, there was nothing different about this one climactic night. Just like every night before it, I just was empty and begging God, please help me. Please help me. And it was like he reached into the room and grabbed a hold of me. And, and lights came on. And he whispered into my ear. not I, I didn't hear an audible voice or anything, but it was, it was clear as, as if it was. And it wasn't any new message. It wasn't anything that I'd never heard before. I grew up in church, it was the old old message, but it was as if I heard it for the first time. I love you and I approve of you. And I knew it was because of Jesus. At my lowest, worst moment, when I felt without hope or love, when I was most confronted with the depth of my own sin and my own failure, I could see finally in, in, in the clarity, the rottenness of me. Every facade, pretense, crutch was gone. All the intravenous idolatry was ripped out of my arms and I wanted to die. And in that moment, Jesus came and stood by me. This is the whole point of Christianity, by the way, that God loves sinners. God saves sinners. While we were still sinners, he died for us. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up. Being friends with Jesus sets us free from sin and death. And if you're a believer in Jesus, he's standing by you right now. Even even when you feel, this is why it's so dangerous sometimes to, to, I mean, feelings are important, but when we judge our spiritual state by our feelings, even when we feel furthest from him, I think he's actually nearer. No matter what comes your way, he, if he stood in your place to take your condemnation at the cross, why would he not be standing by you now? And in the end, when you must face the darkness of death, he will be standing by you because he has gone before you into the grave too. And he has come out victorious that his conquest of death might be yours. So that even if they kill you, yet will you live. Friendship with Jesus is real freedom. Freedom. It doesn't get more free than that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, you you are so precious and worthy and holy and good. And we thank you, God, that you, you condescend to us, not simply in pity, but in real compassion, in love and affection, that you have lavished out on sinners like us Through the gift of your son. Help us by the power of your spirit. And the righteousness of your son Jesus Christ. To love you more. And to love each other as we have been loved. And it's in your son's great name that we pray these things. The name of Christ Jesus. Amen.